You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You like what we do here at the podcast and want to further support? Consider subscribing to the Patreon for behind-the-scenes content and voting on show topics. Any donation goes a long way and continues to help this show exist, grow, and thrive. Let's get to the show. Terrorist. What comes to mind when you think of terrorism or a terrorist organization? This might be a good time to check your biases, depending on the first thing that just popped into your mind. What if I told you the United States is home to a terrorist organization even older than the FBI itself, one with the blood of U.S. citizens on its hands, reaching back over 150 years. The Ku Klux Klan, or KKK, is that organization, the oldest terrorist group in the United States of America. This is the story of the rise and resurrection of that infamous organization. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. The year is 1865. The South just lost the Civil War and is in complete shambles. Towns covered in ash and debris. Railroads destroyed. The women were left grief-stricken from the loss of the men in their families and their way of life. The remaining men felt indigent. Which is ironic, considering the fact that the South was given very lenient treatment by President Andrew Johnson, despite committing nothing short of treason. Abraham Lincoln also thought it best not to come down too harshly on or punish those involved in the secession. In many other nations, this high level of treason would have landed the participants imprisoned, exiled, or executed. But getting off relatively scot-free wasn't enough for the people of the former Confederate States of America. They were angry about the lost war, economy, and the lost way of life. You'll often hear some people claim that only 25% of people owned slaves, but everyone benefited from slavery. Enslaved people were often leased out to families or individuals, and the entire economy centered around the crops and products produced due to slave labor. Even in the North, slave labor supplied the cotton that fueled the textile industry. The first millionaire in American history came from cotton. So the South had two options, harbor resentment and push back against the changes, or get with the times and embrace this new way of life. 
Become leaders in the new America and help with the reconstruction efforts to rebuild the South and welcome in the formerly oppressed black people as equals in society. Here's a hint, they didn't choose the second option. On Christmas Eve, 1865, in the town of Pulaski, Tennessee, a small group of former Confederate soldiers all got together for one big pity party. They drank and carried on and came up with an idea to form a social club. This club became known as the Ku Klux Klan. Ku Klux pulling from the Greek word kyklos for circle and the Scottish word clan. They were determined to preserve their way of life, protect white women, and the advancement of the white race. You know, all totally normal stuff. This is around the same time the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were introduced into the Constitution. These would become known as the Reconstruction Amendments. They outline the following. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery with a small loophole that excluded cases in which slavery could be served as a punishment for crime. The 14th Amendment was naturalized citizenship. So if you were born in America, you get to be an American. So everyone that was formerly enslaved was now a citizen. A little scary that the same amendment that gave the enslaved citizenship is currently being eyed for revision. It also declared, at least in theory, equal protection under the law. And the 15th Amendment protected black men's right to vote. Black women would not be able to vote for quite some time, along with white women. Black men began using their wits, freedoms, and newly established rights to participate in the political process. Several black men across the South and in the North ran for office. We actually have an episode about one of these men, Robert Smalls, a formerly enslaved black man from South Carolina who stole a Confederate ship, gaining his freedom, his family's freedom, and the freedom of other black families through a daring and tactful and carefully executed plan. Violence and harassment began. Black people were beaten and harassed for trying to exercise their rights, rights the Constitution gave them. These Klansmen wore disguises or masks and used the cover of the night to carry out their crimes. In 1868, a pamphlet titled Principles and Purposes of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan began to circulate in Louisiana. It was a clear piece of propaganda spreading the message and the vision of the KKK. Some of these ideas may sound a little familiar. Freedom of speech. If you've ever wondered why the KKK was allowed to carry on, it is in part due to their right to free speech, technically. Law and order, white superiority, Christianity, and the importance of being a good Christian who brings other good white Christians into the world. And lastly, the protection of the flag, the Bible, and the Constitution. This pamphlet also stated that the KKK does not condone violence. LOL. The closing remark reads, quote, Jesus Christ is the Klansman criteria of character, and to him we look for light, love, and life. Unquote. And by the 1870s, the organization had spread far beyond Pulaski, Tennessee. Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest became the KKK's first Grand Wizard, a title given to the Klan's national leader. Over time, even he felt that the KKK's act of violence went too far. He disassociated himself with the organization and even called for them to disband. From 1865 to 1869, President Andrew Johnson 
was president because he was Abraham Lincoln's vice president. And we know what happened to Abraham Lincoln. And Andrew Johnson had no issue turning a blind eye to the actions of the KKK as a Southern Democrat himself. And ironically, Andrew Johnson is from Tennessee. He allowed black codes to be established in the South. These codes put policies in place that upheld voter suppression, segregation, and subjugation of black people. He also felt that former Confederates should be pardoned and even allowed to hold office. The more progressive members of Congress took issue with this and were able to get the Civil Rights Act of 1866 passed, despite President Johnson vetoing it. Imagine vetoing a Civil Rights Act. Fortunately, President Ulysses S. Grant, who came after President Johnson, was not having it. He did not just fight in the Civil War to reunify the country to allow this kind of division and nonsense to carry on. He was tasked with driving Reconstruction forward post-Civil War despite opposition from white Southerners and the KKK. President Grant began receiving letters from all over the South requesting his help with the ongoing Klan problem. He recognized the need to protect black citizens and acted swiftly. His administration pushed forward the Enforcement Acts, also known as the KKK Acts. He passed these acts in 1870 and 1871 to help indict members of the organization and use military force to suppress their efforts. These would be the first pieces of anti-hate crime legislation the country had ever seen. The First Enforcement Act stated that people cannot gather to obstruct the constitutional rights of others, like voting. But some words on a piece of paper didn't phase the Klan, so they ignored these orders. Less than a year later, Congress passed the Second and Third Enforcement Acts. This put locations such as polling places under federal supervision and protection. They also allowed the president to use military force against anyone in violation of these acts. President Grant may receive a lot of criticism for his presidential experience, some of the economic decisions that he made, and his occasional binge drinking. But that man was a mastermind when it came to war and very tactful, and he stood up for civil rights. After the KKK's persistent insubordination, things went from bad to worse. At one point, martial law was even declared in several counties in South Carolina. Numerous Klansmen were convicted and even more ducked back into the shadows. Those who were convicted, however, received fairly lenient sentences or no sentences at all. I mean, it's kind of hard to convict people when a town's law enforcement are wearing the white robes as well. Reconstruction ended in 1877 after roughly only 12 years, all thanks to the Compromise of 1877 and President Rutherford B. Hayes. It is hard to say exactly how many people remained Klansmen because they operated in secret, and at this time, their public appearances were less needed. The KKK operated under these new systems with a less formal structure, but what members and ideologies remained helped enforce and uphold the racist policies of the day and the Klan's eventual rebirth. Coming up next, the Klan rises again. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One autumn night in 1915, a man by the name of William Joseph Simmons, filled with the desire for white power in his heart, marched Stone Mountain, Georgia, with some of his associates. They carried with them a cross. Once satisfied with the height, they reached and raised and lit that cross on fire, right there on the mountaintop. That fire burning sent a message to anyone that have may been an onlooker. The Ku Klux Klan was back. But what sparked this sudden desire and revival? I mean, the Klan had been relatively under the radar, and they didn't have a history of burning crosses at that point. This was a little off-brand for the hate group. All of their inspiration came from a film called Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation was one of the first major blockbuster films in American history. The over three-hour-long film was riddled with racist stereotypes, blackface, and the KKK. Some would even say that the film was just a large KKK recruitment video. This work of fantasy, very, very, very loosely based on historical events, was told from the Confederacy's perspective, and the KKK were the heroes of this story. Saving white women, riding into town on their horses like heroes, draped in white robes and burning crosses as means of intimidation. The cross burning was an idea borrowed from the Scottish medieval traditions. It is said to serve as a war call. But what exactly was the Klan declaring war on? So William Simmons, inspired by the movie, thought that now was the perfect time to resurrect the organization and restore it to a glory that no one had seen before. And who was president at this time? I can't quite put my finger on it. Oh, Woodrow Wilson. You may remember from previous episodes of this podcast that Woodrow and his second wife, Edith, had connections to the ideologies associated with the KKK, and these connections were strong. Woodrow was born just before the Civil War and grew up during the start of the first iteration of the KKK. He likely witnessed some of the mistreatment they enacted firsthand. But still, this wasn't enough for him to condemn the organization in his adulthood or presidency. In fact, he even held a private showing of Birth of a Nation at the White House. His racism and Southern pride influenced his own policies and enabled him to turn a blind eye. At this point in history, the United States was having a boom in immigration. The First World War was underway and a lot of people from Europe and Asia were beginning to make their way over to the United States. In fact, it's estimated that from 1900 to 1915, more than 15 million immigrants arrived in the United States. The fear of the foreigners fueled the KKK's desire to reassert white order. The FBI, which was established around 1908, was still a very new organization and did not have the tools to address or take down the Klan. The KKK was a widespread and rapidly growing, strictly white Protestant organization. During the time right after the Civil War, their main persons of interest to target and intimidate were black people and Republicans who supported black people. But now their list was long. They were against anyone Jewish, anyone black, anyone who supported anyone black or Jewish, anyone Catholic, anyone Italian, German, Irish or Asian. Basically, if you didn't fit into their understanding of what an American was, you posed a threat and their understanding of what an American was, was white. The KKK was going to do anything in their power to ensure that these new people did not disrupt the current social order. 
They still felt it was their duty to protect the flag, the purity of white women, the Bible, and the Constitution. Which is pretty delusional when you consider that none of these things were actually under attack. The people coming to America were just coming in search of a better life. That sounds familiar. Elizabeth Tyler and Edward Clark were at the top of this KKK rebrand. They acted as publicists of the sort for the KKK and helped push propaganda and advertisement on the organization's behalf. They began collecting membership fees to invest into the organization's growth and their own financial gain. The more people talked about the Klan, the more it helped spread their message. And no publicity was bad publicity. So, even today if someone hears news about the atrocities of the Klan, there will always be a few people who take interest in the organization and look into it. But this particular rebrand was a family affair. The Klan hosted everything from baptisms to picnics, parades and pageants, even summer camps. Women even had their own chapter of the Klan, established in 1923. They supported their hooded husbands. They taught their children about what it meant to be a true Klansman. Children's chapters of the KKK began to form as well. Thousands of children under the guidance of their parents joined organizations under the umbrella of the Klan. The Junior Ku Klux Klan was for teenage boys trained up to be future, full-fledged adult Klan members. The Tri-K Club taught teenage girls how to be models of purity and submissiveness. The Ku Klux Kitties and the Cradle Clubs for elementary school-aged children and babies existed. Talk about indoctrination. These organizations were essential in the eyes of the Klan in order to keep their teachings going. It was to normalize. For the women, a lot of their friends were in the Klan, their husbands' friends were in the Klan, and their kids all played together. They attended Klan events together. It was a total bubble of white supremacy. In fact, some congressmen even joined the Klan to be able to tap into that network for votes. At the 1924 Democratic Convention in New York, it was estimated that about 350 delegates were Klansmen. That same year, Hiram W. Evans, who was the Imperial Wizard at the time, would appear on the cover of Time magazine. At its peak, some estimate that the membership of the Klan raised as high as 8 million members. To put this in perspective at the time, there were roughly 40 million non-immigrant white people in the United States, meaning that one in every six white people born in the United States was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Keep in mind, that 8 million number doesn't include people who were just affiliated with the organization or supported the organization from afar. It's also unclear if that number includes all the children or women who were involved. But please, do not be deceived. This organization was not just getting together for potlucks to talk about how they were going to keep prohibition going and move into peaceful all-white neighborhoods. They were committing crimes and using intimidation tactics to get the power that they wanted. The KKK, even today, maintains that they are a non-violent organization. But the lynchings, beatings, and murders conducted by some of its members would contradict this philosophy. Deplorable things were going on underneath this family-friendly facade, period. In 1921, the members of the Klan and other participants would burn and bomb Tulsa to the ground. The Tulsa massacre was started after a white woman falsely accused a black man of assault after they were briefly on the elevator at the same time. White citizens already resented the fact that black citizens were thriving on their own in the neighborhoods that they had been relegated to. Tulsa at that time was known as Black Wall Street. They took the accusation of the white girl as an excuse to kill any black citizen and destroy their homes and burn Black Wall Street to the ground. 
The black people of Tulsa put up their strongest fight, but it is hard to fight back against bombs and a mob of thousands of white people. The exact death toll is unknown with numbers upwards of 300. Thousands and thousands of dollars in property damage and destruction. Nothing was ever done to really restore Black Wall Street. There was no significant intervention from the current administration and no restitution for the survivors. Only as recently as this year has the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, agreed that a debt is owned. Unfortunately, there are only several remaining living survivors of the Tulsa race massacre. Soon, people would begin to see the Klan for what they really were. Or at least the actions of some of its members would become so unforgivable that it would be shameful to be associated with the organization. What could someone in a hate group possibly do to get its members to disassociate themselves? There was already a little bit of shakiness because of accusations about where membership dues were going. Leaders were accused of misusing funds, drinking, and having extramarital affairs. There was hypocrisy amongst the leaders. But the actions of David Stevenson, one of their high-ranking Grand Dragons, tipped the scales. David Stevenson was in charge of overseeing several chapters of the KKK across multiple states. He held a far-reaching higher rank not only in Indiana, but in several other states around the country. In 1925, he would meet German-American Madge Oberholzer and was determined to catch her eye. He was nothing short of a predator. One evening, she went out to meet him at his request. It seemed to be for more professional reasons, but that night would take a dark turn. Trigger warning for sexual assault. Stevenson, with the help of some of his accomplices, forced Madge to get blackout drunk. She would go on to be abducted, held captive, sexually assaulted, and abused. She had bite marks all over her body. He bit her so hard in some places, she bled, and in some cases, even took chunks out of her flesh. She became very sick from infection and mercury poisoning from tablets she took while being held captive. She was denied any sort of medical care, and Stevenson had her returned home. She would die not long after. Her parents were devastated but determined to get justice for their daughter. Stevenson went on trial and was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Membership numbers began to drop like flies, and with the start of the Great Depression, people just simply couldn't afford their dues, and the organization began to quiet down. By 1930, it was estimated that the Klan had decreased to about 30,000 members. This same year, the Klan still organized a march on Washington right down Pennsylvania Avenue. And in 1944, they formally disbanded. But once again, there was a significant decline in direct membership. The attitude of the organization lived on. The years following were hardly a time of peace for people considered non-white. And in typical fashion, when people wanted more rights, more representation, and fair treatment, the Klan would resurface again. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, 
every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. In 1945, World War II came to a close. Nazi Germany had been defeated and the United States on the world stage, at least, was on the right side of history. But back home, it was a different story. Soldiers began to return home from the war, and not much had changed. Black soldiers, who had fought for this country and the freedoms of the world, were denied basic rights and respect, just like when they returned home from the First World War. Imagine risking your life only to return home and not be able to enjoy a slice of pie at a lunch counter, because even though you're a veteran, you're still a black veteran. Incidences such as this, along with the continued lynchings and unfair treatment, led to the rise of what we know as the Civil Rights Movement. The Montgomery bus boycotts were underway, as well as several other protests and demonstrations. Don't get it confused. The Civil Rights Movement wasn't all holding hands, singing songs, and protests in the streets. It was a war zone. U.S. citizens who had helped build and defend this country were met with unimaginable violence and pushback. Even those not directly involved in the protests could be killed for just about anything. Billie Holiday famously received death threats just for singing about strange fruit hanging from the trees. Although the Klan was significantly smaller than it once was in the 20s, their membership was still in the several thousands. There were also other groups at this time that may not have been the Klan, but were closely affiliated in ideology. Protestant ministers, the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, the NAACP, and many more organizations all did their part to expose and stop the Klan. Brave journalists went undercover to learn about the organization and expose the men under the hoods. These same media outlets did their part to print stories to spread awareness about what the Klan was doing. For some people, the severity of brutality wasn't fully understood. It wouldn't be until 14-year-old Emmett Till's open casket in 1955 that people all over the country would be able to conceptualize the brutality that was being inflicted on black bodies. But in 1954, when the Supreme Court ruled in the case of Brown versus the Board of Education that schools declared separate but equal were unconstitutional, this is when the Klan lost their minds. Integration? Not on our watch. The Klan began to ramp up its violence and its efforts, and by the 1960s, they were dropping bombs all over America. If you listen to any of our other content, you may be familiar with places such as Dynamite Hill, where the KKK frequently dropped bombs on black residents in order to deter them from moving into the area. In 1963, the Montgomery church bombing killed four unsuspecting black girls. Addie Mae Collins, 14. Cynthia Wesley, 14. Carol Robertson, 14. And the youngest, Carol Denise McNair, 11. The Klan was directly responsible. They orchestrated the attack and struck those young women down in their earliest years of life. Those women would be in their 70s today. And in June of 1964, the Klan in Mississippi would target three voting rights activists, Michael Schwerner, James Cheney, and Andrew Goodman. During this time, several activists from the North were joining the fight for equal rights in the South. The three men were pulled over for speeding, and not long after, they would go missing. All of the people involved in their disappearance cover for one another. But soon, the activist torch vehicle surfaced, and the truth that they were in fact murdered was revealed. The exact number of people involved in the cover-up is not 100% clear, but none of the people arrested for their involvement, including the sheriff and a local preacher, were found guilty of the murder. Seven people were convicted for violating another person's civil rights, each serving no more than six years in prison. 
One man, Edgar Ray Killen, in 2005, was only recently brought to justice for these crimes. He was not convicted at the time because he was a preacher and the idea of bringing him to justice was inconceivable. This incident became known as Mississippi Burning. On Sunday, March 7, 1965, a woman by the name of Viola Liuzzo was murdered by the KKK. She was a white activist who left her young daughter at home to journey down south and help in the fight against the infringement on the rights of others. While driving home one evening, she was shot and killed by the KKK in her car. Her associate who was with her laid down in the back seat and played dead to avoid being killed by them too. She put her life on the line to do what was right regardless of color. Viola was 39 years old and her bloodshed on that day helped push forward the Civil Rights Act of 1965. All of the violence backfired. Instead of slowing progress, it actually helped to accelerate progress. When the nation saw just how dastardly the Klan was, they were horrified at the more overt forms of mistreatment. It's sad to say that despite all of the blood that was shed previously, it was this white woman's life that supplied the necessary push. But it's important to remember that she was an ally, a true ally, and that her death, although untimely and unfortunate, helped move the movement forward in a way that she would be proud of. J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of the FBI at the time, focused his attention to all organizations deemed undesirable. In 1964, he would officially integrate the KKK into his COINTELPRO counterintelligence program. In response to the violence of the Klan, black people began to rise up in their own black power movements. Hoover used his power not to fight white supremacy, but to suppress these movements instead. This is evident by the fact that many of the socialist and black pride organizations were extinguished, but the Klan was allowed to live on. Perhaps some of his energy should have been directed away from his obsession with Dr. King and towards the KKK. Maybe doing this would have actually been able to disband the organization. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. would be assassinated, and that just seven days later would give Lyndon B. Johnson the push to sign the Fair Housing Act into law. Change was coming in spite of the Klan. In the 1970s, a new leader for the Klan was on the rise. David Duke became the poster child for the organization. In 1974, he founded a chapter of the Knights of the KKK in Louisiana. He was only 24 years old. He would then go on to be their Grand Wizard. He worked on giving the KKK an image that was less violent. He insisted that they just held their own beliefs and that those beliefs should be respected. He is quoted during this time saying, quote, our clear goal must be the advancement of the white race and separation of the white and black races. This goal must include freeing the American media and government from subservient Jewish interests." Unquote. He continues to be involved in politics to this day, despite no longer being an official member of the Klan. He even ran for Senate in 2016 and endorsed President Donald Trump in 2020, even though Trump claimed he had no idea who David Duke was before reluctantly denouncing him but David Duke does not have the power to change the image of the KKK. People know the truth. It is estimated that between the year 1882 and 1968, almost 5,000 lynchings took place in the United States. It's important to remember that these numbers do not account for all the brutality, assaults, destruction of property, and displacement caused by the Klan. The final nail in the coffin was the lawsuit. Michael McDonald was 19 years old when he had a run-in with the KKK. A black man had recently been put on trial for murdering a white police officer. Deeply disturbed by what had happened and at the possibility that a black man may walk from murdering a white police officer, white supremacists Benny Hayes and James Knowles took to the streets. They targeted Michael McDonald, 
who was literally minding his own business. He was in no way affiliated with the crime involving the police officer. He was just a teenager in the wrong place at the very wrong time. And he was a black teenager in the wrong place at the very wrong time. On March 21st, 1981 in Mobile, Alabama, these men abducted Michael, beat him, hung him, and slit his throat. His body was discovered the next day. The death of her son left Beulah McDonald feeling a deep sadness and deep desire for justice. Although both men would face consequences for the horrific crimes they committed, this was not enough for Beulah McDonald. She would sue the KKK, claiming that they were responsible for her son's death, and she would win $7 million in damages. The verdict bankrupted the organization. With no money and a bad reputation, the Klan was losing all of its strength. Oh, and there's also the serial killer. Yeah, you heard that right. A serial killer with close ties to the KKK. Joseph Paul Franklin was a proud member of the Klan. His dream in life was to start a race war. He spent his free time toting a sniper rifle and shooting anyone that he considered unworthy to walk this earth and committing robberies when he was short on cash. He went after the usual targets, black people, interracial couples, Jewish people, etc. The typical enemies of the KKK. His murders all took place in 1977, and 1980 was when he was finally convicted. It's estimated that he murdered at least 15 people and injured several others in 11 different states. Now, this is just an estimate. It is believed that he killed even more people. He was caught when he tried to donate blood in Florida, and a man realized that he fit the description of the serial killer the FBI was after. He was sentenced to death November 20th, 2013. Before his execution, he maintained that he had changed his ways. How convenient and that his racist ideologies were the result of childhood traumas. As you can see, the KKK has crept its way back to the present day. Attacks at the hand of the Klan continue even today. As recently as 2016, the Klan held a rally in California. Naturally, several people showed up in counter-protests, and violence broke out between the two groups. Three of the protesters were stabbed. The members of the KKK claimed self-defense. I mean, if you just Google the Klan rally and search the news, you'll find that merely a few weeks ago, members of the Klan put a gun on an LGBTQ activist in Kentucky. No arrests were made, of course. The current existence of the Klan is like living through some sort of bad horror movie sequel. And just when you think it's over, there's another sequel. The KKK is a pattern of reappearing when there's a push against the social norm. In 1865, it was the end of slavery and reconstruction. In the 1920s, it was immigration. And in the 50s and 60s, it was the civil rights movement. And now, I don't think we're above another resurgence. In fact, we might be on the cusp of one. As of 2017, the KKK still has active chapters in over 20 states. There are currently 3,000 known members in the KKK alone. And unfortunately, that number is growing. Other groups with similar ideologies are also growing as well. What's even more sinister is many of the members passed former, and current remain anonymous to the public. We will never truly know just how many people have those robes hanging up in their closet. Until next time. If you liked that episode of the Redacted History Podcast, leave us a rating or review on whatever platform you're listening on, or go leave us a rating on your Instagram story and make sure you tag Redacted History. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.